You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Freedom Pack podcast. Today on the show, we are joined by Professor Massimo Pigliucci. Massimo is the Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Massimo holds a PhD in evolutionary biology, is a best selling author, and has written in a number of books, including How to Be a Stoic. And Massimo's latest book is called A Field Guide to a Good Life, 53 Brief Reasons for Living. In this episode, expect to jump into a time machine and go back a couple of thousand years. Stoicism. We've all heard of it, but it's become this fancy term that everybody's heard of, yet nobody quite knows what it means. Well, today that changes. With Massimo, you will find out what Stoicism is and how it can benefit your life, why you shouldn't fear dying young, how to make decisions like Marcus Aurelius, why it's going to be beneficial for you to meditate on your own mortality, and so, so much more. Before we jump into today's episode, The video interview of this is live on our YouTube channel, which you can access by swiping up and clicking the YouTube link, or simply by heading over to YouTube and searching Freedom Pact. If you enjoy our work, then we also offer a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter, which goes out once per week on every Monday, with a dose of all of the good stuff, book recommendations, articles, journals, questions for you to ponder, and we also reveal who our upcoming guests are. There's a link below for that, and if you get any value at all from our work, if you subscribed and left us a five-star iTunes review, then that would make us so, so, so happy, as it helps us to get the best guests on and to grow the show. So without any further ado, I give to you the incredibly thoughtful and practical Professor Massimo Pigliucci. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It is amazing to have you here. So when I was reading through your book, it made me think that in the last few years in particular, perhaps it's with these Corona pandemic and different things and, you know, reported rising uh, depression cases and whatnot. But it seems to me like stoicism over the last number of years has taken a big rise to the point where I would be willing to bet that the people listening now in for a most part have all heard of this stoic philosophy. So before I suppose we jump into the reasons why and we go through your book, how would you best define Stoicism? Stoicism is an ancient Greek Roman philosophy, which I often think of as the Western equivalent of Buddhism, um, in part because 
there is a lot of similarities there in terms of their, the, the ethics, although their metaphysics are very different and their view, the view of the world is very different. But um, in terms of how to behave in the world, right, they're actually very similar. In fact, there are a lot of points of contact also between Stoicism and other philosophies, such as Taoism, for instance, or Confucianism. So Stoicism started out uh, about 23 centuries ago in Athens, and it was meant to be a practical philosophy in response to a period where the world seemed to be going into chaos. We're talking about the Hellenistic era uh, between the death of Alexander the Great and the collapse of the Macedonian Empire and the uh, Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, where... Um, Mark, uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra were defeated by Octavian, uh, who later became the first uh, emperor of Rome. So we're talking about a period of major turmoil where the Mediterranean world was changing you know, almost every day, major events, uh, chaos everywhere, and people felt like things were out of control, essentially. And in that period, a number of philosophies flourished, not just Stoicism, but Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, Skepticism, there's a bunch of them. Stoicism became one of the most popular, arguably the most popular for several centuries. So I think the one reason uh, Stoicism is, you're right, increasingly popular today is because we live in turbulent times, not just because of COVID. I mean, yes, definitely that's, you know, you wouldn't believe the number of requests for interviews that I got since the pandemic started. Um, and that's, that's understandable, predictable. But actually, more broadly, you know, let's not forget that we between the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, we're living in a period where we, we went through two world wars. We're still under the threat of nuclear Armageddon any moment. Uh, we are facing climate collapse uh, any moment. Uh, we have seen major political upheaval. I mean, the United States currently is going through, I think, uh, a, a crisis that could turn very well into a constitutional crisis, depending on how the elections in November go. So... Yeah, no wonder people are turning to philosophies like, like Stoicism to learn how to endure uh, these situations, to cope with them, how to still live a meaningful life despite everything that is going on. Yeah, I find, I, find, I, find that so, I find it amazing we can even get out of bed in the morning. Right. There is a, a bit in the Marcus Aurelius Meditations where he actually says himself exactly that. It's like, oh, you would rather not get up in the morning and stay under the blanket, right? But you have a job to do as a human being. You have to participate in the human cosmopolis. You have to be helpful to other people. So get the hell out of there. You know, forget the, the bed and, uh, and the comfort of the blankets. You, you have to do stuff. <laughs> absolutely absolutely so in terms of doing stuff um i loved how at the start of your book you brought down stoicism into um i believe four main pillars and if i remember correctly i think the temperance was one i think there was the last one practical wisdom was another so i wonder what are the main principles of stoicism so the, the, the things that you're referring to are, are called the, the practical virtues, the, the cardinal virtues. And these are, in fact, four pillars of Stoic philosophy. Basically, the idea is that you can use these, these um, uh, virtues as a kind of a moral compass. For everything you do in life, you should ask yourself, is this practically wise? And I'll explain to what that means in a minute. Um, is it courageous? Is it just? And is it temperate? Because those are the, the four, the four uh, virtues. Now, practically just, you know, practical wisdom is essentially asking yourself, is this good for my character or not good for my character? 
the Stoics want to do things that are good for their characters, that improve their characters, that make them better human beings. So if you're facing something that, and I'll give you an example in a minute, if you're facing something that is not, that you suspect is not good for your character, that kind of undermines you as a person, then you shouldn't do it. The second question, is it, is it, does it require courage? If it requires courage, and courage here is meant, is understood as moral courage, not just courage to you know, face danger in battle or something like that. Uh, so it has to be courage for the right reasons. Justice is what tells you, the virtue that tells you what those right reasons are. Justice means fairness to other people, treating other people the way you would want to be treated, uh, treating other people as inherently worthy of, uh, of respect because they're human beings, that sort of stuff. And then finally, temperance means doing things in the right measure, not too, not too much, not too little. So let me give you an example. Let's say that, that I'm at work and I see my boss who is harassing a coworker. And the question that I, that I pose myself is, should I intervene? Should I say something? And so I go through the four virtues, all right? And I, I check, I check myself so with, against those four. I say, okay, so is it practically wise for me to intervene? Yes, because to intervene improves my character. It makes me a better person. Not to intervene, in, on the other hand, undermines my character. It's not a good thing for me. So the first answer is yes. Is it courageous? Uh, well, yeah, it requires courage because it's my boss. So I could face you know, retaliation from my boss, even possibly lose my job or certainly be reprimanded or something like that. So yes, it does require courage. Third, is it a just thing to do? Well, I'm sure my coworker would appreciate uh, somebody stepping in and, and helping out just like I would appreciate it if I were the one being harassed by, by the boss. So yes, it is just. And is it temperate? Well, that depends on how I do it. So if I just mutter something under my breath so that my boss cannot actually hear me, that's not enough, right? You haven't done anything. Um, so temperance tells you, no, you need to do more than that. At the opposite extreme, I don't want to jump, jump up and, and punch my boss on the nose because that's too much. That's, a, that's an overreaction to the situation, right? It doesn't, it doesn't require that sort of reaction. So I need to do something in between, which means I need to talk to the, you know, firmly and, and calmly and, and say what, uh, what, what's on my mind. So that's a classic example of how to use the four virtues as a moral compass. Basically, everything you do in life, from the small things to the big ones, you should always do them if they are in agreement with the four virtues. And if they're not, you shouldn't do them. So I imagine that the people listening now, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, wow, there's, there's a lot of things which I would then be refraining from. I mean, is that a major yeah. part of stoicism, ref refraining? Yeah. Yes, most of the times don't do anything because, you know, uh, it turns out that we do a lot of things that we actually regret eventually or that we don't feel very good about it. So, yeah, that's right. If you're in doubt, just like, okay, well, then, then it's not something that it's virtuous, therefore I'm not going to do it. Uh, you're going to be much more focused. You're going to be actually focusing your attention on a small subset of things that are really worth doing. One of the things that stoicism does for you is it focuses your attention. It makes it more clear to you why it is that you're doing certain things and what kinds of things you really ought to be doing. And the rest, yeah, if it's not needed, don't do it. Save yourself time and trouble. I love that. I love that. Um, at the start of the book, you give stoicism and also Epicureanism. And I think one of the chapters you've got is called uh, Epictetus and Me. So I wonder, could yeah. you just give us an overview in terms of how Epicureanism differs from stoicism? Yeah, Epicureanism is one of those other Hellenistic philosophies that I was mentioning earlier. Um, and it has a lot to recommend 
uh, to it. I mean, you know, you know, there are some people even today that uh, practice Epicureanism. But, but there are some major differences with Stoicism. And also there are some misconceptions, both about Stoicism and about Epicureanism. So let me start with the misconceptions. So Stoicism, for instance, it's often, you know, often people, when you hear the, the word Stoic, they think of somebody who goes through life with a stiff upper lip uh, and trying to suppress emotions, like a, you know, sort of a Mr. Spock from Star Trek. <laughs> no, it's not like that. Um, of course, every stereotype has a grain of salt and so a grain of truth. And so uh, indeed, indeed, endurance is a Stoic virtue, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a Stoic value. Uh, if there is nothing you can do about a situation, if you cannot change it, then you have to endure it. But that doesn't mean a stiff upper lip. It just means, hey, look, if, I, if there is nothing else I can do about it, what, what is my choice? It's either I throw a tantrum or I just get through it. So you don't, you're not a child. You don't throw a tantrum. Um, you, know, you get through it. In terms of emotions, it is not true that the Stoics try to suppress emotions. But what we do try to do is to shift our emotional spectrum, if you will, away from what we consider negative, disruptive, unhealthy emotions and toward healthy emotions. So we try to stay away, for instance, for instance, from anger, hatred, fear, because those are emotions that get in your way of doing things. But on the other hand, we also want to cultivate positive emotions, such as healthy emotions, such as love and joy and a sense of compassion, a sense of justice and so on and so forth. So that's, that's about that, the stereotypes for Stoicism. Epicureanism also has its own stereotypes. Uh, people often think of Epicureanism as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of philosophy, right? Oh, oh, if you're an Epicurean, that means you just spend your day, you know, uh, you know listening to rock and roll, trying drugs, and, and, and having sex. It's like, no, not really. But Epicureans, Epicureans did say that one of the most important things in life is pleasure. Uh, they, they mean seeking pleasure, but they meant, you know, the small pleasures of life, like the pleasure of friendship, the pleasure of a good conversation, uh, the pleasure of security in life. So having your own house, home and, and being, you know, feeling secure, that sort of stuff. But more importantly, for Epicurus, the most important thing actually in life was to live without pain, both physical and especially mental pain. So this, the, the Epicurean's goal was to reach a, a, st a state of mind that they refer to as ataraxia, which literally means serenity, tranquility. It's just like you are not disturbed by things uh, and you don't feel pain. And that is a major difference with Stoicism because the Stoic's goal is not to uh, achieve ataraxia, it's to live virtuously, to, li to, have a, to live a good, a good life in terms of a moral life, Okay. Now, sometimes living a moral life means that you, you need to endure pain. Uh, sometimes yeah. you make decisions that are painful. And, and if they cannot be avoided, then you just have to deal with, with that situation. So a major difference between Epicureanism and Stoicism, for instance, is that Epicurus counseled not to get involved socially and politically. Because as we, as we all know, political involvement does carry pain. Yeah. It's, it's a painful thing. For the Stoics, on the other hand, political and social involvement are actually primary. They're very important. We are a member of a society and we have a duty to actually be involved socially and politically. And that is a major reason why uh, Stoicism is, is it's more congenial to me than Epicureanism. I actually studied Epicureanism and considered it as a possibility, but I don't think that I would want to live a life where I'm not socially or politically involved. Mm, interesting. So out of these two, which one was the dichotomy of control born out of? 
The, the parameter control is, uh, is a stoic uh, principle, and uh, it's, it was present from the very beginning of the philosophy. The philosophy was founded by a guy named Zeno of Citium. Citium is modern, modern day Cyprus. Uh, back in, the, 20, in, uh, uh, in the, uh, the end of the fourth century BCE. But it was particularly brought to the forefront by my favorite Stoic philosopher, Epictetus. The book, um, you know, uh, A Field Guide to a, to a, to a Happy Life is, about, is mostly about Epictetus. And Epictetus was a fascinating character. I mean, he, he was born a slave in Hierapolis, which is in modern day Pamukkale in Western Turkey. He was bought uh, by um, a wealthy uh, freedman and brought to Rome. In fact, we don't even know Epictetus' real name. Epictetus just means owned, you know, bought. So, so it was, it was clearly was a slave. And, uh, um, but he was brought to Rome to the, to the court of the Emperor Nero because he was bought by the secretary of Nero, the personal secretary of Nero. And so he grew up in Rome, uh, eventually, because he was a bright guy, he studied philosophy, was allowed to study philosophy, he was freed, he was given freedom by his master, and then he started teaching uh, Stoicism. Eventually, he got into trouble because he was speaking truth to power. As I said, Stoics tend to be politically and socially involved. A, a later emperor, uh, Domitian, did not appreciate that. And so he actually sent a bunch of Sto Stoic philosophers into exile. Some of them he, he killed, as a matter of fact. But um, Epictetus was sent into exile in uh, northwestern Greece uh, in a town uh, called Nicopolis. And uh, he, the, he went there, he reestablished his school, and he became the most famous teacher of the second century, of the early second century. So famous that um, most of the, you know, the, the, the great uh, the aristocratic families in Rome sent their, their kids to study with Epictetus. And a later emperor, uh, Adrian, became a friend and visited often uh, Epictetus' school. So back to the dichotomy of control. The dichotomy of control is at the, forecent, at, at, at the forefront of uh, Epictetus' philosophy. And it is a, a concept that many people are familiar with because it's found also in other traditions. It's found in um, medieval Judaism, in 8th century Buddhism, and also in 20th century Christianity, uh, you might have heard of the Serenity Prayer. The Serenity Prayer was written by an American theologian in the early part of the 20th century. And it is uh, uh, often it starts 12-step uh, organization meetings like Alcoholic Anonymous. Right? And the Serenity Prayer basically ask, asks God to, to grant you the, um, the wisdom to be able to tell the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change the courage to change what you can, and the serenity to withstand, to, to, to appreciate what you actually cannot change, right? Now, that is essentially the dichotomy of control. The earliest version of it is found in the Stoics, and Epictetus puts it this way. At the beginning of the Enchiridion, which was his manual for a happy life, my field for a, ha for a happy life is, in fact, a rewriting and updating of Epictetus' manual. And at the beginning of the manual, Epictetus says, some things are up to us, other things are not up to us. And then it, it continues. Things that are up to us includes our judgments, our opinions, and our decisions to act and not to act. Things that are not up to us include our health, our reputation, our career, and pretty much everything else. Now, if you stop there for a second and you think about it, you say, wait a minute, hold on. How is it possible my health is not up to me? Uh, I mean, surely I can do things. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Uh, so this is particularly... Uh, uh, pertinent. How is it that health is not up to me? I mean, I can decide to 
eat a healthy diet, you know, to, to maintain my health, I can decide to go and work out uh, and, you know, to maintain muscle tone and aerobic capacity. I can decide to go to the doctor in a regular, on a regular basis to practice preventive medicine so that I can catch things happening before they actually become too So What do you mean it's not in, in, my, in my control? And the pediatrician says, yeah, yeah, you can do all those things and you should do all those things, absolutely. However, you should also be prepared for the fact that you don't control the final outcome. A virus, which Epictetus knew nothing about, of course, because the ancients didn't know anything about viruses, but a virus can come in and no matter how good you are, no matter how careful you are with masks and social distancing and, and uh, washing your hands, it may still strike you dead. Now, of course, the chances that that's going to happen are lower if you do the right things, right? If you wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, but it can still happen. You don't control the outcome. You only control your actions and your decisions, but not the outcome, right? The same goes for everything else, like your career. For instance, you know, I'm a professor of philosophy, as you, as you pointed out. Before that, I was a professor of biology. And, you know, certainly a number of things that I did in my career, you know, getting promoted, first of all, getting a job in the first place in academia and then getting promoted, you know, getting tenure, all those sorts of stuff. In part, certainly I contributed to it, obviously. It's not like people just give them to me. But I didn't control the outcome. Uh, the tenure decisions, the hiring decision, the promotion decision, all of those were not up to me. They were up to other people. And other people may have decided uh, otherwise. It's, so all I could do was to do my best to be a good biologist first and a good philosopher later, to put together you know, the best resume that I could, to prepare for the interview and all that sort of stuff. But, but the outcome was not up to me, right? Reputation, same thing. I mean, obviously we can work on our reputation. We can, we can these days of social media, we can curate our image on Facebook and Twitter and you know, stuff, stuff like that. Um, and we can work, we can, really work at our reputation, meaning we can try to be good persons, you know, that people actually uh, have in esteem and, you know, and so on and so forth. But something can happen, you know, some malicious rumor can get started, especially in social media, and you have absolutely no way to counter it. It's like, what, what are you going to do? It's like, you can do your best and you should do your best, um, but you don't control the outcome. So the notion of the dichotomy of control, therefore, is that, so what do you do with this? How, how does that become an actionable thing? becomes an actionable thing because the idea is that we should try to internalize our goals. It comes natural to us to focus on the outcome, right? I want to be healthy. I want to be loved. I want a job. I want this and that and the other, right? But the outcomes are not up to us. What is up to us is our intentions and our decisions. Therefore, we should internalize our goals. My intention, my, 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 what I want should be to be the best person I can so that other people love me. Um, to be the best you know, professor that I can so that I get promoted, hired and promoted. Um, to be the best, uh, you know, the most careful person so that I maintain my health and so on and so forth. So you are gonna be happy if you're a stoic with your efforts. So long as you, you know that you've done your best, then there literally is nothing else you could have done. The outcome sometimes goes your way, sometimes it doesn't. And as an adult human being, you understand that from the get-go and you say, okay, well, I've done my best. Now we'll see what happens. I find that so interesting. And I, this idea of the dichotomy of control, I first read about this when I think I was about 15 or 16, actually in Stephen Covey's work, when he talked about this uh, circle of uh, control. So, I mean, it's 
riddled throughout um you know history and all these yeah. notorious writers i think that in your book you make the case that uh william irvine he talks about these different uh circles sort of thing where he gives where he talks about no control influence and then things which you have control over like the things you mentioned there right um one of the things i'd love to pick up on is I think that in my own life, I've given a lot of concern to the things I can influence instead of really focusing on the things within my control. <laughs> right. Why would, or why would that perhaps be a, or sorry, why should I rather focus it on the other way around? Why would that be a better strategy? So here's the thing the, the, we, do, we all tend to think that there are some things that are clearly, we acknowledge that there are things that are clearly outside, entirely outside our, our control, right? You don't control the weather, for instance. Mm-hmm. There's nothing yeah. you can do about it. Absolutely nothing. You don't even influence it. That's it. It is what it is, right? And then we also agree, I, I assume, that there are things that are completely under our control. If I endorse a particular opinion, right? So if I think, like, for instance, oh, I am going to vote for, for such and such candidate at the elections, that is my opinion and is entirely mine. Yes, it can be influenced by other people, of course. Uh, it can be inf- influenced by the fact that I talk to my friends, that I uh, you know, read things and so on. But ultimately, it's my decision, right? The, the buck stops with me. It's, it is my decision. But then most of us tend to, think, to, to focus on the things that are in between, that appear to be in between. What you said, the things that were influencing, right? But for the Stoics, those things are actually an illusion. Uh, everything that you influence it can itself be broken down into two components. One that you don't do anything about, you can't do anything about, and the other one that you can. Um, I have already provided a couple of examples, but let me give you another one. So we're just talking about elections, for instance, right? Do I influ- can I influence the elections? Yeah, in a sense, yes, because I vote, right? I can vote. So even though my individual vote actually has a very tiny contribution, the fact is, you multiply that by millions and millions and millions, and you have an election. So, yes, my vote influences the election. Does it determine it? No. Obviously, right? I don't determine the election. So, if I say, well, I want such and such candidate to be elected, that's what I want, right? That's the outcome. Um, and I say, well, I'm going to work on it because, because I can influence it. Yes, but everything about that falls into these two categories. What is it exactly that I can do? I can vote, right? Voting is entirely up to me. That's not enti- up to anybody else. I don't just influence it. I decide, do I wanna vote or do I not wanna vote? End of story. Who do I vote for? It's entirely up to me. If I decide to, uh, let's say, spend some money to send money to a, to a candidate uh, campaign to help them out, that's entirely up to me. It's not just an influence, it's me, right? It's my decision. But what people do with that money, what the candidate does with that money, it's up to him, not to me. Um, whether you know, the, my vote actually does make a difference in the election or not, that's not up to me. Um, so so everything, every time you think, oh, I can influence this, in reality, what you're saying is there is part of this that it's up to me, and then there is part that it's not. And so what is the advantage of focusing on the first part? Well, that you focus on the part that it's actionable. You focus on where your agency is maximized, right? And therefore, not only you're more effective because that's where you, you can actually act, but you also feel better psychologically because you're actually doing things. You know, you're in control of certain things. I, there is, you know, we live in a, in a situation of chaos and, and turmoil, and I have 
you know, I can't control uh, what Trump does. I can't control the pandemic. I cannot control the, uh, you know, what the police does in the streets, shooting people and so on and so forth. And none of that is under my control. So should I just despair? No, because there are things that I can do about those, th those things. I can vote uh, in one way when it comes to election. I can send my money uh, to certain organizations that support the certain political agenda. I can join protests. You know, I, I live in, in downtown Brooklyn and a lot of the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests have just been going up and down my, my street, literally down, down from my uh, apartment. So from time to time I join in. Um, those are things that I can absolutely do. I, it's not that they are in question. Those are things that I can do. And so at the end of the day, when I do those things, I feel better because like, oh, I did something. I, didn't, I wasn't just on Twitter complaining about things, uh, you know, or I wasn't just watching the news and fuming about what, what, what was happening. In fact, I, I actually watch very little news and I tend to stay away as much as possible for social media. I'm active on social media only in certain respects when it comes to, you know, putting out stuff about philosophy, but not about political uh, discussions because I know that they're useless and I, I can't, you know, that's, it's a waste of my time. So stoicism does this. It really focuses your attention on the things that really matters to you, matter to you, and on the things that you can actually act on, the things that are actually actionable. I love that. I love that. And thank you for the distinction there. Let's jump into some of the, uh, some of your 53 pillars. So I picked up a couple, which I think were really of interest to me. So on your eighth pillar, you say, do not demand that things happen in the way that you want them to happen. And this brought me back to an episode I did with uh, Robert Greene. He was uh, an author of uh, 48 Laws of Power, Laws of Human Nature and other things. Right. And on the show, he come on and he discussed that he was a follower of Amor Fati, which I believe yes. is translated from Nietzsche's concept, which I believe means a love of one's fate. Right. So I think that that's such a beautiful idea and probably links really well um, in there. And then you say, cultivate an attitude of equanimity towards externals. Be glad and appreciate when they work in your favor. Don't get mad when they don't. So I suppose, why would perhaps loving one's fate, even potentially if it's not all that favorable, be a good idea? Yeah, actually, that is one of the, the places where I'm, I disagree with Epictetus. As I said, the, 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 a guide to the happy life, a field guide to the happy life is an update of Epictetus. Now, Epictetus does say that we should embrace and love our fate. That, that phrase that you, you mentioned, amor fati, which doesn't mean love your fate in, in Latin, is from Nietzsche, but Nietzsche was taking it from the Stoics. And uh, so Epictetus actually did say, no, you should not only um, you know, endure things, when they don't go your way, you should actually embrace them, right? You should actually love it, right? Now, why would he say that? Because the Stoics believed in providence, in cosmic providence. The Stoic believed that uh, the, the world, the universe itself, is a living organism endowed with what they call the logos, an ability to, ra to think rationally, right? And we are literally bits and pieces of the logos. We're, we're bits and pieces of the, of the cosmos. So whatever we do, it benefits the universe, Right. Um, and therefore, we should whatever happens to us, it's good for the universe and we should be happy about it, even though it might not be actually good for us. Epictetus gives this beautiful metaphor of the uh, imagine you're a foot, you're part of a body. Right. And you're just a foot, however. And the foot has to step into the mud because the body has to get home 
And it turns out that in order for the body to get home, you had to pass, you know, you had to cross a, a, muddy, a muddy street. Now, the foot, if he didn't know that he was connected to the body, he would say, what the hell is this? This is disgusting. I don't want to step into the mud. I mean, this is really bad. It's like, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that. But if he realizes that he's connected to a body and therefore that he's, he's stepping into the mud actually helps the whole thing, then he's not only going to endure it, he's actually going to be glad to do it. He's going to say, yes, this is my duty. Let's go. Let's, let's cross the mud, the muddy path, because then we can get home, right? So the problem is, I don't believe the universe is a living organism endowed with the logos, <laughs> right? I mean, if that, that notion made sense 23 centuries ago, that made sense 18 centuries ago when Epictetus was alive, because at the time, this was, this was actually a reasonable view of the universe. Essentially, the Stoics uh, deployed what today we call an argument from design uh, to infer that the universe was uh, essentially godlike, that, that, it was, that it was a living organism, as I said, uh, uh, you know, uh, endowed with reason. Uh, they said, you know, things are just too complex, too beautiful, too, too, too interacting for the, this whole thing being the result of chaos, right? Um, well, modern science, on the other hand, tells us, guess what? <laughs> they actually are the result of chaos, right? Not exactly chaos, they're the result of the laws of nature, what we call the laws of nature, right? Um, and so we, we know better these days. We know that the, the universe is a set of dynamic processes that follows, uh, you know, invariant rules so we call the laws of nature but we don't think that it's a living organism we don't think that it's endowed with reason we we as far as we know we are the only organism in the universe endowed with reason there may be others on other on some other planet but as far as we know we're the only ones so it's up to us really it's not you know whenever it's something happens to you it's not helping the universe it's either helping you or it's detrimental to you and that's the end of the story however i still think and i write in 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 the, in the field guide that the basic idea uh, has a lot of value. True, we cannot really bring ourselves to love our fate because that's too much. It's like, no, what do you mean love my fate? If I, if I get cancer, I'm not going to love it because it's not helping anybody. It's just hurting me and my family. That's it. End of story. However, I do want to be able to endure it. I do want to be able to tackle whatever life stands my way including setbacks, including tragedy, in the best way that I can. Why? Well, what, that's because there's only two alternatives. Either I endure it and do my best, or I throw a tantrum and start crying you know, every, every day. It's like, well, throwing a tantrum isn't going to help. It's going to make me feel more miserable than before. Right? You know, so not only being diagnosed with cancer, now I also feel miserable because I, I keep thinking of myself as, oh, poor me, poor me. Um, no, not only that, it's not helping me. Because, you know, maybe the diagnosis is not going to be fatal. Maybe there are things that I can do. Maybe there are things, even, even if it is terminal, there are things that I want to do between now and then, right? Let's suppose that somebody, you know, that my doctor says, dude, you got five years to live. Oh, well, that's not great, but it's five years. Um, so I got time to do a lot of stuff that I wanted to do. Let me start, you know, the first thought would be, okay, let me, let me absorb this news, right? Because that's shocking news for a human being, obviously. But then the next one is going to be, all right, and what am I going to do between now and then? We often don't realize that we're always in that kind of situation, right? We, ne we don't know when we're going to die. We have no idea, right? We have statistical expectations, of course, but that's all they are, statistical expectations. Just, just uh, for curiosity, the other day I looked it up, actually, for my own 
my own uh, amusement, so to speak. So I'm 56 years old. I live in New York State. And other things being equal, a man living in New York State in the early part of the 21st century has a life expectancy of 79. So that means that I got 23 more years to go. Okay. All right. Um, but do I really? Nobody knows, right? Because it could be that a combination of genetics, uh, you know, maybe I got lucky, and environmental conditions will actually allow me to beat that expectation by a lot. I could live 5, 10, 15 years longer than that, for all I know. Or I could die today. I could go after this, this conversation we're having. I could cross the street. Some nutcase, you know, uh, doesn't look at the, at the red light and runs me over. And that's the end of the story. Right? I don't know. I have statistical expectations, but I don't know. That's why the Stoics say you should live your life with urgency as if every day were your last, because it could be. And, and so if, if you knew that this was your last day, or if you knew that this was your last year, then ask yourself, what, what would I do? I bet for, for myself, for instance, I bet I would spend a lot less time answering emails and, and, and going on Facebook, that's for sure. <laughs> and so once you realize that, you say, oh, then maybe I should spend less time on Facebook and email regardless, because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not likely to die today, but why do I want to spend that time doing that sort of stuff as opposed to things that are actually important? There is research that backs this up, by the way. Uh, there is uh, research done by psycho modern psychologists who have asked people on their, you know, near their death, on their deathbed, so what kind of things do you regret about your life and what kinds of things do you, do you think actually you did well? And I guarantee you, nobody says, oh, I wish I checked one more email. Um, nobody says, oh, I wish I'd gone to one more office meeting. Uh, nobody says even, oh, I wish I got one more million dollars. Nobody does that. What they tell you is, I wish I spent more time with my loved ones and my friends, or I wish I'd done more that was meaningful to me and useful to society. Those are the kinds of things that people say on their deathbed. So the stoic take is, why are you going to wait until your deathbed? Just do it now. There's a wonderful phrase that Epictetus has, um, and he says, um, you know, the Olympic Games has started already. Don't wait until tomorrow. You're already behind. So the, the, the race has started. So what are you waiting for? You know, like people do these um, uh, New Year's resolutions, right? Which, for one thing, there is pretty, pretty good evidence that don't work. You should, most people that make a New Year resolution within a month or two, they just they, they abandon it. But one, what always struck me as bizarre is why do you want to wait New Year's? So let's say, oh, I'm going to, after New Year, I'm going to be more healthy. Really? Why would you want to wait months in order to be more healthy? What, what makes you think it's a good idea? If you, if you understand that, you know, living a healthier life is good for you, why the hell do you want to wait for it? Uh, oh, I want to be a better person. I don't want to get angry. Well, then start now. Why, why do you want to wait months down the road to do that sort of stuff? Love that. What well, on the point in which asking, you know, people towards the end what they regret. When I think about that, I mean, I think about my own life. I've never regretted an act of kindness, but right. many of the um, urgent uh, type one thinking, as Daniel Comfort said, I've had a lot of regrets from that. So, <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. One thing I'd love to pick up on is you talked about. Um, 
this potential that I suppose none of us really know when we're going to die. You know, we all have a, um, a finite number of breaths, a finite number of heartbeats. One thing I was thinking about as you were talking about that is I was thinking about this concept that mostly all over the world, it would be considered a tragedy if someone dies young, right? right. I suppose when I look back through history, let's say Emily Bronte died, I think it'd say something like 30. Kobe Bryant died at 42. Alexander the Great at 35. John Keats, all these people died very young, but yet we still know who they are now. They lived a deep life, perhaps That's instead right. of a broad one. So what would the Stoics say about dying young? Yeah, the Stoics have a lot to say about that, especially Seneca, who was a first century Roman uh, Stoic. He was a a little older than, than Epictetus. Uh, in fact, the two must have met because Seneca was Nero's advisor. Um, and so they must have met at some point, although we don't have any record of, of these meeting. But Seneca writes a lot about, about that sort of stuff. So uh, he says a couple of interesting things. He says, first of all, when people say that, uh, that somebody's died before their time, they don't know what they're talking about because there's no such thing as dying before your time. You die when you die. That's, that's it. Um, you know, your death is the result of the universal uh, web of cause and effect. And so what you mean is you die earlier than your statistical expectations. Yes. But, but early, it's no, there's no, you know, it's not up to you. It's up to the, to the universe when you're going to die. So there's no such thing as dying early or, or, or late. Um, but then he says, and that's more, more pertinent to the uh, the question and the way you, you put it, he says, so since we don't know when we're going to die, and since we, it's not like we can avoid it, it's not like we can do anything about it, so when it comes, it comes, then the real question is not how long you live, but what you're going to do with your life while, it, while you're alive. So the question is, you know, now he was talking about people that that trying to prolong their lives as much as possible, and then they don't know what to do with themselves on a Sunday afternoon. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> Right? So, so we should be focusing not on extending life uh, or, or worrying about when, when we're going to die, but rather about we are alive right here, right now. And that's the only thing that matters. Right? The past is gone. It's, it's not under your control. You cannot change it. Whatever you've done in the past. So the Stoics, for instance, are very much not into regret. Regret, it's a waste of time as far as the Stoics are concerned. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn from your experiences in the past, right? You should definitely do that. You should definitely reflect on your experiences and learn. But regretting and say, oh, I wish I'd done. Well, you wish, it doesn't matter what you wish because you've done what you've done. So the only question is, what are you gonna do now? If you did something wrong in the past, then are you doing something now to redress that wrong, right? Instead of regretting it, ask yourself, well, what can I do to make it right, right now? Also, not worry too much about the future because the future is going to come if it's going to come, assuming you do have a future, which you don't know. But if it's going to come, it's going to come at its own pace. It's, you, know, you, you, don't, you can't control it. You don't, there's nothing you can do about it. The best, way that you, you, the best thing you can do to prepare for the future is, in fact, to pay attention to what you're doing right here, right now. Uh, Epictetus often says, uses uh, the, the, um, a word that in, in, uh, in Greek that's translated as attention. And um, uh, the reason for that is because he says, nothing was ever improved by not paying attention to it. Right? So imagine he uses this, this analogy, he says, um, and this is also in Seneca. He says, um, so imagine you're the, the captain of a ship and you're piloting a ship. Um, 
what do you think is going to happen if you don't pay attention? If you just like start wandering around and looking at other things, like I don't think your, your voyage is going to be improved. If you're in modern days, you know, if you're piloting an airplane, I'm sure the last thing you want from a, from a, from a pilot is, is to hear over the, the speakers like, oh, okay, I'm going to take a break now and I'm going to have a walk or, you know, going to play cards. It's like, no, you're not. You're paying attention to what you're doing right now. Then you're going to play cards once you land, right? There's a proper time for, for playing cards. That's not the time when you're piloting a plane. So that's the notion. We should do things by paying attention right here, right now, because that's where your agency lies. You're, you're effective now. And so you should be asking yourself, is this a really good you know, uh, way to spend your time? Is it meaningful? Um, is, it, is it something that is going to be helpful to you, to your loved ones, to humanity at large? Those are the kinds of questions you should be asking. And if the answer is no, then don't do it. Do something else something else yeah that's that's so interesting and you know, on this topic i suppose they are so right in terms of that you know living with a sense of urgency i really do love that message i think that in um one of the pillars in your book you talk about this idea of meditating on death and um you know, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be the first to admit, I mean, I don't want to die. <laughs> you know, the thought of meditating on my own death, it was, it was, you know, it's quite a scary one. But I also know about this concept, which I think the Stoics had, memento mori. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, and so to me, it seems like this idea has really stood the test of time. And it's probably one which not a lot of people want to do, but they probably should. So yeah. why is that a, a real powerful concept? It, it, it is very powerful. And let me tell you, so memento mori is, again, from Latin, and it does mean remember you, you're, you're immortal. Remember you're going to die, mm -hmm. right? Now, when you say that to people, it's like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> why are you telling me? I know that, but I don't want to think about it. But in fact, it helps a lot. At least it helped me and it helps a lot of people. Um, so when I was younger, I actually was kind of obsessed with my own death and not in a good way. Right? And I was, I was kind of, you know, the, the thought was going there often and it was not a pleasant thought. And sometimes it actually got in the way of me doing things. Um, since I started practicing stoicism, little by little, things change. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't fear death or that I, you know, I'm looking forward to it. The hell with that. No, I'm not looking forward to it. I, I want to live as long a life as possible um, as, as much as it is a healthy life, an active life, one when I can actually do things, right? Um, but at the same time, it does help me do what, um, the, what the Stoics refer to as the premeditation on death. And there are different ways of doing it. My favorite is actually to go to a cemetery from time to time, just, just on purpose, go to a cemetery. There's one uh, uh, really neat, nice one in, uh, in the lower Manhattan, uh, right up by Wall Street. Um, and it's, uh, it's the middle of the city, so it's in the middle of chaos, but it's an island of, of peace in there. And what, what do you do? You go there uh, from time to time you, on purpose, and then you very carefully sort of look around, walk very slowly, pay attention to the names, the dates of people, and so on and so forth. And think about the fact that one of these days you're going to join that crowd. That one, one of these days it's going to be you. And then you think, so before that time comes, what do I want to do with the time that I have, right? So it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That is, you use a meditation on death to renew your urgency for life, right? So whenever I come out of a, of a cemetery after, after, after having done this kind of meditation, which takes some, you know, 
as much time as you want, sometimes 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. If it is a large cemetery, you might want to walk around for an hour. It's a nice, it's a nice way to stroll around anyway. But once, every time that I come out of it, I say, okay, well, I need to get back to writing. I need to get back to teaching. I need to get back to, you know, uh, uh, interacting with my wife and my daughter because those are the important things in life for me, right? And so it's a, re- it's a way to renew uh, your your enthusiasm for, for life to kind of reset things. It's like, oh, I'm aware that that's going to happen one of these days. It's not an if, it's only a matter of when. Um, so in the meantime, I might as well enjoy and, and, and do the best that I can uh, with, with whatever life I have. I think that's a great exercise we could do. Could I trouble you for another practical exercise that uh, sure. we could do? Yeah, there, there's a number of my favorites. I, I think one of the most effective ones, actually, uh, in the Stoic arsenal, which also has a lot of back, backup from modern psychological research, is the philosophical diary. So if you read uh, Marcus Cerritos' Meditations, for instance, the entire book is actually a, a diary. It's the personal diary of, of the emperor. <clears throat> but not the kind of diary where he writes, today I ate this and and today I did this and that sort of stuff. It's a philosophical diary, meaning that the emperor reflects on the, the meaning of what he's done and whether he's done things right or not and what, what he can do in order to improve himself, right? Um, the philosophical diary is something that uh, it's not meant for publication. I mean, we, we, we read the, the meditations, but it was not meant for publication. It was, it was his own personal thing. And I do it almost every day. And I take a few, a few minutes right at the end of the, of the day before going to bed. And I sit in front of my computer. Um, I, I write it on my computer, but you can, you know, write in handwriting or whatever. And, um, and so I reflect on things that happened during the day. And I say, okay, so today, w- what happened? And, and what, what is it that I did wrong? What is it I did right? And what is it I could do better? Those are the three fundamental questions you want to ask yourself pretty much every day. Now, why would you want to do that? Because... When I ask myself, what did I do right? Um, I want to learn about the positive things. I want to remind myself, it's like, okay, that was actually, that, that was a good one. So, so you need to go and do more of that. By the same token, when I ask myself, what did I do wrong? It's not to you know, self-flagellate or, or, or regret or anything. It's like, okay, well, that's the kind of stuff you want to stay away from, right? Oh, for instance, oh, today I got angry with one of my students. Well, stay away from that. That's not a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, today I was generous toward, you know, one of my coworkers. Great. That's a, that's a thing that you want to cultivate. That's a thing you want to keep doing, right? And then the third question is, what could I do differently the next time around? Because, you know, we all think, I don't know about all actually, but we, there's a tendency uh, that people have, have this notion that our life is so varied and so different. And, you know, every time is, we do different things. No, we don't. Our lives tend to be pretty much the same. I mean, we're all experiencing this, this under quarantine, right? Your life is literally the same every day. You do the same, same damn thing. But even under normal conditions, if you think about it, you know, we, you, you get up and you go to work, you do that pretty much every day. Uh, you see the same people, you encounter very similar situations. You come back home and you see your loved ones and you encounter similar situations. During the weekend, you do similar things. You see your friends and you see similar people and doing similar things. You know, with variation, of course, we're not doing exactly the same thing. But that means that if you pay attention in your philosophical diary, when you've done something that you're not proud of, not only you should pay attention to it and say, okay, this is something that I don't want to do, but also you should ask yourself, 
this is going to happen again. Something like this, this is going to happen again. So next time, in order to be prepared, what, what should I do? For, I can give you a, a very, um, very trivial example. This, this was actually years ago uh, that happened. I was walking down the village uh, you know, in, in New York City, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and I bumped, without wanting, I bumped into another, a woman that was going the other way, and as a result of that, her coffee cup just exploded and, and splattered all over the place. Didn't hit me at all, but it was all over the place. I was so non-expecting that, that I had no idea of what had just happened. And I just mumbled something like, you know, I'm sorry, and then kept going. Then I thought about it. I said, well, next time that something like this happened, offer to buy that person a cup of coffee. Because even though it was not your fault, I mean, you, you know, I was not paying attention. So to, to some extent, it was my fault. Um, but probably she was obviously also not paying attention because, you know, she was in conversation with somebody else. But regardless of whether it was my fault or not, or the degree to which it was my fault or not, this is an interaction with another human being. You just disrupted, you know, the afternoon of a human being, of a fellow human being. So next time, just stop and say, oh, I'm sorry. Here, let me, here's two bucks. Well, actually. Or for Starbucks. Yeah, it's probably more than that. It's like, you know, here's three or four bucks. Please, on me, because, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I feel better that way. So this is the kind of thing that you want to pay attention to. Of course, that was a trivial example, as I said. Sometimes there are much more, you know, important things. You know, situations that the first time that they happen, you don't know to react. The, what Seneca says that uh, a prepared mind reacts much better to things. And people that never expect things to happen, they don't know what they're doing, what they do. You know, it's like, ah, something happened. It's like, ah, what am I going to do? So you become paralyzed. And there is, again, there is a lot of evidence from modern psychology uh, that that is the case. Uh, for instance, there are situations where uh, psychologists have done experiments where, you know, somebody may, uh, pretends to be sick, let's say in the middle of a mall, and a lot of people don't intervene. And they don't inter it's not that they don't intervene because they're a bunch of assholes and they don't care. It's just they don't know what to do. It has never happened to them. So it's, so it's like they're embarrassed. It's like, well, should I intervene? Maybe the guy is faking it. Or maybe, it's, you know, maybe there's a hidden camera now that is going to show up all of a sudden. It's like, I don't, I don't know. And they're paralyzed. They don't do anything. But if they're told ahead of time, look, over the next week, something like this might happen. What are you going to do? I guarantee you, they're ready to go and they'll immediately intervene. They'll, they'll, do the right, they'll do the right thing because most people actually are kind of decent. You know, I tend to have a fairly optimistic view of humanity despite all the stuff that is going on uh, at the moment. You know, most people want to do the right thing and they don't do the right thing either because they're not prepared mentally and so they missed the chance or because they don't understand what the right thing is. This is another one of the really important notions that Stoicism has and, um, and that I go into in, in, in the field guide to a good life. Um, this idea that people by and large don't do evil on purpose. They don't do bad stuff. Nobody goes up in the, in the, in the, the, at the beginning of the day, goes to their mirror and says, whoa, what kind of bad thing can I do today? Nobody does that. Um, we all want to do the right thing, except that we disagree on what the right thing is. And some of us, at least some of the time, are actually misguided about what the right thing is, right? Well, if somebody is misguided, however, the right response is not to hate them or to punch them on the nose. The right response is to try to teach them. 
right? To try to explain. It's like, look, maybe you haven't considered things this way, but there is this, this alternative. And Marcus Aurelius says um, uh, to himself in the meditations, because it was his diary, he says, look, when people do bad things, you have two options. The first one is to teach them. And if you cannot teach them, then endure them. Then, you know, they just say, okay, well, that's how life is. You know, some people just are misguided and there's not, nothing I can do about it. Now, I want to be clear about this. This is not a counsel for quietism. It's not a counsel for not doing anything, for not intervening. If you're seeing an injustice being done, you should intervene. Um, if you can, obviously. But then you shouldn't go on and say to the other guy, oh, I hate your guts because you've done that. That, that doesn't help. That doesn't do anything. Um, Epictetus has this really wonderful analogy. He says, you should treat people that do bad things as you would treat a blind man. If you saw a blind man going, you know, walking down the street and stumbling and hurting people because he's bumping around people, what are you going to do? Are you going to put him into jail? No. Are you going to say, you bad blind man? No. What you're going to do is first to make sure that he doesn't hurt people. Right? So other people's safety is, is paramount. Second, if possible, you're going to try to make sure that he doesn't hurt himself. And then you're going to try to teach him how to walk in the streets as a blind man, you know, either with a, with a cane or, or with the help of somebody or with a dog or whatever it is. You're not going to berate him. You're not going to say, you know, what a bad blind man. And when people do bad things, according to the Stoics, it's because they are morally blind. They literally don't see what, well, not literally, they metaphorically don't see uh, what's going on there. They don't understand why what it is that they're doing is wrong, right? Um, and so our, our duty is to minimize the uh, consequences, first and foremost, and then to try to teach them. Well, I certainly love that answer. I love that three-question exercise, and I certainly loved so, so much of speaking to you today, Massimo. Where can our audience connect with you? Uh, well, they can find me on Twitter. We were talking about uh, social media at um, mpilucci, M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. And then everything else that I write, books and essays and podcasts and everything else, uh, you can find the links at massimopilucci.com. So my first name, last name, one word, .com. Everything will be linked below. Do you have any closing messages for these guys? Pay attention to what they do and try to do better. I love it. I love it. Massimo, what a pleasure we are speaking to you today. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, guys, that wraps up what I thought was a fascinating look back in time. What an adventure going back 2,000 plus years. But there, I think that Stoicism is an incredibly potent philosophy for life, an incredible way to live in a world in which there are so many things out of our control. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you guys got any value at all from this episode and any of our other work, then we have a YouTube channel and a newsletter which you can get some more freedom pack from. Guys, that wraps up this week's episodes. I will see you on Monday.